Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. <laughs> this is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip. It is episode 227. I am one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And if you are joining us in beautiful video, HD video, that is, all I can say is I'm very sorry that I misled you for the last two and a half years. I am not a booksomy woman. Booksomy? Booksom? Boxum. <laughs> Boxum. <laughs> <laughs> We are here today talking Escape from Alcatraz on episode 227. This is a film by Don Siegel. It's a film starring Clint Eastwood. It's from 1979. It's actually the last collaboration between Siegel and Eastwood, and the opening title bills it as a Malpaso slash Siegel production. So, we're huge Malpaso heads on here. We love Clint Eastwood's productions and films. We also love Don Siegel. This might be my favorite of their collaborations, honestly. I adored this film on first viewing. Uh, what did you guys think of it? Uh, yeah, no, I thought it was really great. I don't think I loved it uh, as much as you did, but I'm ready to be persuaded. I'm ready to go on that journey. But yeah, the re- I picked this one uh, because, I don't know, I am curious about going the seagull route. Malcolm, you brought him up before. It's like oh, yeah. one of the like first like American like action guys alongside Fuller, like in that whole conversation. I don't know whether it's like a cha- a proper chapter in cinema speculation about Escape from Alcatraz, but I know there's like heavy heavy Siegel talk there, and I know Alcatraz is at least mentioned, and so I really wanted to. Uh, check this one out because it's like I don't know just you everything is is right there on the table with the premise and uh, I just love how bare bones it is to that like exploring that and so much of it is I don't know just the procedure of getting out of the rock uh yeah i had a great time no i i had not seen this one despite being a huge eastwood siegel guy like i love don siegel everybody knows siegel kind of taught eastwood how to direct you know through their many collaborations and and eastwood and siegel they're they're a great combo and it's kind of funny that this is their final collaboration because they kind of i don't say this to denigrate it but it's like they basically remade a man escaped yeah and and it's kind and it's kind and it's great but it is kind of it's a it's an interesting send off because when I think of Siegel and Clint, it is like that's where Clint kind of gets to show off like kind of his like smarmy bad boy personality. Like a lot of like of Eastwood Siegel collaborations is kind of like Eastwood, uh, you know, as a classic man from nowhere, kind of getting into certain situations, kind of like snickering at at the town people wherever, you know, whatever situation he finds himself in. And all that stuff, I guess, is lightly still here, but it, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's all formed in, into this, like, very austere, um, you know, procedural movie that obviously makes you think of Bresson. And I, it's, it's just a very interesting artistic collaboration to send off their career. You know, you think The Beguiled is also kind of them kind of... Um, you know, maybe going out of their style a little bit, but this more more so kind of just feels like a, I don't know. I feel like they. Do you think Siegel was just watching some Bresson movies and want, hit up Clint and you know showed it to him? It, it's I, I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah, the approach is incredibly Bressonian. I mean, A Man Escaped is like so close to this. Uh, that film is all about procedure. I think this film is more so split into two where. The first half is more about the the doomed system of prison. And then the second half, or maybe even after about 45, 50 minutes, it becomes strictly about procedure. But I think the tone setting of the first 40 minutes or so is so essential to this. Uh, if you don't know the setup of the movie, it is the title. 
Uh, Clint Eastwood is a convict that gets moved to The Rock, Alcatraz. Uh, and that's where you go when you've escaped one too many prisons. If you disobey the rules of society, they send you to prison. If you disobey the rules of the prison, they send you to us. Alcatraz is not like any other prison in the United States. Here, every inmate is confined alone to an individual cell. Unlike my predecessors, Wardens Johnson and Blackwell, I don't have good conduct programs. I do not have inmate councils. Inmates here have no say in what they do. They do as they're told. And so nobody's ever done it, and nobody ever will, as it said very early on in the movie. So, of course, uh, he gets together with some fellas in the yard, figures out a way to do it, and does it, much like A Man Escaped. Now, of course, the settings are uh, very different, the tone very different, but those are just like, they're different artists. Uh, Brisson is going to make a very austere movie that reflects upon World War II and, you know, f human faith and perseverance. And uh, Don Siegel and Clint Eastwood are going to make a down and dirty, badass, decidedly American, uh, very cool movie. But it is still very austere as far as these kind of movies can go. It plays with shadow more than any other late 70s Hollywood movie I can think of. Uh, so much of this is played just in the shadows completely, uh, and so much is obscured, even on, like, the new great 4K disc, you know? Uh, like, I watched it in 4K UHD, and even then, like, there's so many frames where it's, like, I don't know, 30% of the image is pretty visible, uh, <laughs> and I love that. I love how dark this is, uh, and how Siegel is just not afraid of the darkness visually and metaphorically. Uh, all of his movies are generally darker than the Eastwood ones. Eastwood has that human humanitarian, uh, humanist streak through his movies that we love so much, but the Siegel ones, man, he is a bad motherfucker in all of those movies, whether it's Dirty Harry or The Beguiled or this. <clears throat> and I think that, you know, even if it's him as a, like Clint Eastwood's always had that smarmy, sarcastic sense of humor, but saying that I hate N words uh, in the beginning, like that bit being like the closest thing to comedy that Clint gets in the movie is so fucking dark. <laughs> like it's ridiculous. I mean, just think of the, the difference between uh, Siegel and Eastwood, Dirty Harry versus like Sudden Impact or any of the other Dirty Harry sequels that are as dark and like fascistic as they are uh full of like you know light touch because it's eastwood you know like sudden impact is the rape revenge one but it has eastwood saying nobody puts ketchup on a hot dog <laughs> and mm -hmm. like I, I i think that that kind of thing being stripped away from this is maybe why it's such a masterpiece and i prefer eastwood as a director in general but i think this is just like the most fucking straight bullet straight line movie that i've ever seen don siegel make uh and his version of invasion of the body snatchers is like one of my favorite b movies of all time and the fact that this topped it and taking a completely different tonal approach blew me away definitely siegel's like in charge of the tone here you know when it comes to like it being darker but it's kind of it's kind of interesting because when i think about something like riot on cell block 11 which is kind of a more of a standard prison movie, you know what I mean? But, you know, by traditional senses, uh, there, there's kind of a, a kind of like a collective struggle that's going on within the prison. You know what I mean? That all this, the cellmates kind of suffer through, you know what I mean? And that, that's in a lot of prison movies. And there's a real kind of like emphasis on kind of like the sympathy or whatever of for these sound you know people imprisoned and in this one it's it's kind of like it's like all that hope or kind of is is kind of gone and it's kind of like yeah that the the beginning of this movie is, is dedicated so much to showing uh how dehumanizing alcatraz is and but it, it kind of uh, in a way though that's uh i guess by showing how it kind of matches the feel of maybe even being in prison a little bit more so than a lot of prison movies. Not that I would know. I haven't been. 
thankfully. But uh, like, I feel enough like Wes Watson. <laughs> I've watched enough. I've watched enough U- YouTubers on uh, on uh, prison that you know to know that it's going to be. I'm gonna have to do some stuff in there that I wouldn't do on the outside. That's all I got to say. But um, with this, it, it kind of feels like you feel the the oppression of being a prisoner, and it's never sensationalized. It's almost delivered to you in this normal way that in which a prisoner would receive it and and, in that way it's all the more deadening yeah i mean it's shown literally and like artistically uh because you know that welcome to alcatraz shot where he's just decapitated by the light and you just see eastwood's torso you know and his head is completely in the black and then you know cut to him having to strip and walk naked down the cell block i mean having to walk naked down the cell block that's the most insane humiliation i've ever seen uh i guess that's probably in a lot of other prison movies i just can't remember it off the top of my head uh but the way that it's portrayed in this is so dark jt go ahead yeah, I just think that, I don't know, kind of echoing what you were saying, like the other Siegel Eastwood uh, productions, they're like, like Siegel's obviously definitely darker than Eastwood, but that darkness, uh, unlike this, is usually more exploitative. And there's that, like, I don't know, that works really well with that sort of like the Eastwood, like, cheeky sort of smarminess to it but i feel like eliminating that and then also just stripping down like uh, i don't want to say like i i feel like siegel's movies are ever like all that wrapped like too wrapped up in like plot mechanics but here it's just like just bare essentials and he's so good at just like making these like set pieces work that I don't know, just that's really all you need. And like in terms of like just going back and forth, because we are obviously heavily invested in Siegel and Eastwood uh, autorism, the ending originally, like Siegel wanted it to be that you would just, the guards would discover the uh, fake, the dummies in the beds and then that would be the end of the movie, like leaving it like uncertain, like what happens. And then Eastwood was not a fan of that. Um, and I think directly suggested uh, the new ending that like winds up in the film. And I mean, certainly I feel like they've always had a collaborative uh, relationship. But I feel like that point of contention is interesting in a film that is their last like partnership. I mean, certainly Siegel's getting old and I've heard like tale of him in some of his final films about him, like snoozing on the job and things like that. Uh, But I, I don't know. It's neat that like push and pull there. I mean, ultimately I think the ending as on film, like, still has like a level of ambiguity to it but at least it's like knowing like okay they got they got out of there yeah i think there's still ambiguity to the ending for sure you know obviously the warden is going to call them dead uh and drowned but the note of the bodies never being found is an optimistic one and I I love that as an ending because it's all about the escape it's not about like whether or not they survive on you know uh what is it angel island or whatever that they swim to uh like it's not about that or whether they can sneak into san francisco it's about escaping alcatraz uh and that's what they did and the back half of this movie the procedure is so good the tension in every scene is just ridiculous i mean there's one fake out uh in particular where so about halfway through the movie you know they they've made these dummy heads so that they can carve into the wall uh and eventually these dummy heads are going to take their places at night when they escape and there's an incredible fake out that Siegel pulls off where the guard sees uh, Eastwood's dummy head. And by the time he approaches it, uh, you don't realize that Eastwood's actually there back in bed and his head just looks that fucked up. It's not the dummy plaster. Uh, And the way that that fake out is pulled off is next level uh, because 
every scene at that point in the movie is just filled with white knuckle suspense uh, to such a level that I've never seen from Siegel. My favorite Siegel for a long time was uh, his Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which I like for different reasons. It's more of like a gonzo B movie. Uh, and like the social message is very obvious and blunt, like the best 50s B movies are. Uh, and it's just like has all this crazy hammy acting and awesome, you know, uh, super tactile effects and everything like that. But I love seeing him fully matured at this point in his career. You know, I, I really, really like those seven, the early 70s Eastwood movies. But this one just shows him as a like next level filmmaker and, you know, in the 50s, he was part of the the system that could like make these incredible masterpieces like nothing because Hollywood had all these incredible technicians. And so maybe the artistry of Body Snatchers isn't as much attributed to Siegel, whereas the artistry of Escape from New York is like, or sorry, keep calling it Escape from New York like it's fucking John Carpenter. Um the artistry of Escape from Alcatraz is like very clearly Siegel and Eastwood split uh, rather than like the system around them. No, I think that that's interesting. You bring that up because I do think his fifties movies, Siegel, that is they they're, they feel very different from uh, the Eastwood collaborations. And obviously there's, there's sprouts there that you will, you would see in the Eastwood collaborations, but that's that's why I feel like uh, this is such an interesting object for it being the culmination of their career. And you know, I, I, I JT brought up Siegel. You know, he might have been snoozing on set. It's like maybe that's true, but like for some reason in my head, like after seeing this movie, I, I was thinking like, did see this is just a fantasy scenario, but like did Siegel like see kind of like like stuff like that Will Friedkin was doing, like with French Connection, and kind of like. You, you also you mentioning the the dissatisfying ending JT made me think of you know French Connection and whatnot and kind of like did did Siegel kind of see you know he always wanted to bring kind of like a dark cynical view to like these crime movies he would make you know Eastwood or not and I think Siegel did did Siegel kind of see that the you know the the rest of Hollywood kind of caught up to that and kind of. Uh, I don't know. It, it, it makes me feel like he was like, I really got to, if this is my last film, I really have to put everything I have into it, including some French art film I watched 10 years ago. You know what I mean? And uh, yeah. that, 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 that's what kind of takes me aback. You know, the, the, the film, the film itself, of course, is a great object, but just as a, a huge Siegel and Eastwood fan, I'm just, I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm touched by this being their final movie, but it's, it's also kind of, uh, strange in a way, but I but I like it. I like it. Uh, the first half, I guess, would be you know it's super dark, but it is the more like in terms of what the genre is, it would be the more fun like getting to know the goofy characters of the cell block uh, <laughs> segment. So you know you got English, the guy who works in the bookstore with him. Uh, you know you got Doc, the painter. You got the guy who keeps the little mouse. Uh, and it's like a nice set of characters uh, for Clint to play to for Clint to play off of, um, and then of course like you see uh, Doc get his painting privileges take away uh, taken away because he paints the warden in an unflattering fashion, and then uh, Doc chops his fingers off, and I think like that's you know leaning more toward like the exploitation action film part of this uh, rather than the Bersonian part of it. But the statement is true of any high low modicum of art. It's like you take away a man's ability to create. What's he? What's he good for? You know, uh, this is a man who all he had left in his life was painting, and they took that away. So of course he's going to chop his fingers off, and it's going to be brutal and disgusting to watch. Uh, I I thought that was like one of the most effective parts of the movie. Yeah, and I mean, you bringing that up to me does like I don't know. It sparks the idea of like I don't think it's all that strong of a current throughout the film, but the Paul Benjamin character English, like the fact that he. Uh, one, I think that the dynamic that he has with Eastwood is very interesting, particularly like him not like being party to the ultimate escape. 
I, I don't know. There is that level there of like they are at uh, the rock, this place like isolated from everything else, and all they have left are kind of the arts and things mm-hmm. like that. And I mean, if not like arts, then like craftsmanship in other varieties. And I think it's interesting that like I mean, obviously, like what really can you explore in a prison movie except that? But the way it paints those individual like lifestyles and how like you you can take everything away except that and you still have that level of solace there. Yeah, I mean, I think the arts and crafts aspect of this is huge. It's like they're doing it's almost like a meta thing where they're doing prop slash set deck work, essentially, uh, to stage their prison cells as being in order, uh, you know, it take the thing from Shawshank Redemption where he has the poster of Rita Hayworth that he digs under and like make that a hundred times more intricate. And you have this movie uh, where they're like digging around the air vent grates and then recreating grates out of cardboard and painting them to replace them. Uh, And just like chipping away with nail files and all these incredible sequences of, you know, there's a sequence where he's welding uh, two like spoons together by getting this bundle of matches and stroking it like a candle. And I don't know. I just love the procedure of the middle to back part of this movie. Uh, It's like incredible. I I feel like the, the beginning of the movie, kind of like the, mostly silent like you know three to five minutes kind of sets you up for that later on you know what i mean because uh it yeah like i i I like how this movie you know it 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 does gives you i feel like the scene where you know doc cuts his fingers off i i feel like it's it's it it serves the purpose of exploitation but it also just kind of very simply sets the stakes it's like staying here is not tenable you know what i mean and I, I, I do I love the scene where the guard decides to take his paintings away because he's just kind of casually walking around uh, the prison, just spinning his whatever he has on his finger, and it just randomly. I kind of like that he just accidentally uh, comes across the paintings and then just very, very simply decides to to take them away. And you know, I feel like uh, the the Eastwood. Uh, kind of like the individualism throughout his movies, you know what I mean? Like the idea of being in prison and have to following someone else's rules. I mean, that's everyone's worst fear, but like like for like Eastwood and kind of like the character he set up throughout the years, it's like that not only is that my worst fear, but I will risk my own life to escape that rather than stay. Everyone's worst fear of prison following the rules. <laughs> in a way you know you have to follow someone else's rules maybe that's not you know you don't want to be someone's punk i, I want to talk about that too punk. because that's 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 well the the scene where clint eastwood is propositioned for gay sex and he you know he's like the guy's like oh you're gonna be my new punk and then eastwood uh you know gives him a a very nice beating, to be honest. Like as far as beating goes, just like three punches to the gut, soap in the mouth, and then kind of a slow kick down. Like not that bad of a beating. Very effective. And very effect. Like it's 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 kind of like the movie in a way. It's like it's not overindulgent. It's it's just enough to get the job done. I'm looking for a new punch. Good luck. You don't understand. I just found it. Why don't you show her what you can do? But I... That's the one thing that's in this movie that's kind of like in all the Seagull Eastwood movies and even Eastwood movies post-Seagull. There's so many gay guys propositioning Eastwood for sex in his movies. Like, there's easily at least seven to eight characters who have propositioned Clint Eastwood for gay sex. And I, I, think, I think I know where the origin of this might have come from. 
Really? Did, did, yeah. Well, where? Did I? This is kind of the the rumor on how Eastwood got discovered was that um, that this this guy named Arthur Lubin kind of spotted Eastwood randomly and basically funded his career, like paid him a hundred dollars a week just to become a better actor. And kind of the the rumor that shrouded Eastwood early on his career was that he was being funded by like a gay guy. And, you know, that was like very scandalous back then. So I don't know. I'm just, I, I remember hearing about that a couple weeks back and it popped up in my mind and it just made me realize there's a lot of like people propositioning Eastwood for, for gay sex in his movies. And I wonder if it has anything to, to do with the rumors early on in his career. I'm not with that gay shit. <laughs> he also invented that stereotype. I think Eastwood yeah. invented like the 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 trope of like the gay yeah, guy like, who just propositions any guy he sees in a movie. Yeah, exactly. Which or is like, totally a yeah. real thing in real life. <laughs> exactly, you know. But that, I think you know, good or bad, we gotta uh, credit people for their cinematic inventions, and I think Eastwood. He might have made that one popular. Well, I think he's grown and learned, too. You know, like he goes yeah. from that to the mule where he's like being very friendly with the dykes on bikes, you know? Yeah. No, th- I think I think in his movies, there's like, I think in Play It Again, Misty, like he'll, he has like some back and forth with like a gay, like, like a gay guy's like kind of like clowning on him for being too straight. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, I think, you know, he's not a perfect person, but I think... I can't, I, you know what, I can't speak to what he thinks, but, you know, just a, some, something I've been thinking about. I do, like, in terms of Clint and his character here, one thing that I feel like is, like, I don't think it plays all that much of a role in the film, but I think uh, the way the knowledge is revealed, I think, is very, like, not subtle, but like kind of a good way to skate around something and especially like tap into a level of believability in the film is like very early on, we're looking at the DOS, the dossier with Eastwood's character. And it's like dangerously high IQ or something like that there. And I feel like he's not like, (laughs) like, which I looked up because I was like, obviously the film is based on, uh, the real life uh, escape from Alcatraz, and like the first thing for the Wikipedia page for the this other guy was extremely extraordinarily high IQ. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I thought that was funny, and just I like, feel like they used to say that about any criminal that wasn't just like forty IQ, just some crumb bum. Yeah, I don't. He's know. the smartest crook we've ever seen, <laughs> just it because really... he knows the fucking alphabet. It doesn't really come across all that much other than just that. I mean, he puts together a very elaborate escape. Uh, but I thought I, Clint is not really playing uh, dangerously high IQ'd men throughout his career. Mostly just kind of clever guys. <laughs> yeah, he's more crafty than smart in this movie. Yeah, it's yeah. like Bugs Bunny. Yeah, exactly. Although I guess he's an escape artist, right? They mentioned him busting out a, a couple prisons and that's why they got him in Alcatraz. So I guess, you know, I guess it, it takes a different type of, uh, I, that's more of a street smart type of thing, but. I don't know if the IQ test tests for street smarts. I don't know if that, it incorporates <laughs> that in. Well, that's just the kind of discrimination and standardized testing that we need to get rid of. You know, that's like the problem exactly. with every, you have to watch The Wire to really understand that. But um, <laughs> anyway, to, to really wrap this up, I know like I haven't said much about this because it's such a minimal movie. So there's not much I can say uh, in terms of details of like, oh, that one shot that was like really dark and then it was cut against the other shot that was like a guy <laughs> moving toward the camera. Uh, no, I, I love the procedure of the escape and I love the setup of the institutional rot of the prison. Uh, for me, this is like a straight up masterpiece. I finished it and I was just like, there's nothing I would ever change about that movie. It goes by like that. Uh, and at the same time, it really has that sense of of pacing in the first half that makes you feel like you're stuck there with the characters. And so you understand their desperation more. Uh, For me, this is an easy five bullets. Side note, 
when I was 14 years old, I took a trip to San Francisco. My older cousin was living there at the time. And uh, so me, my older cousin, my aunt, and my grandfather, uh, we all actually took a little trip to Alcatraz and toured around. Because, of course, Alcatraz, as it says, was shut down after uh, the escape noted in this movie. And it's just been a tourist attraction ever since. And they let you go in solitary. Uh, like D block solitaire. Like, first of all, the changes made to Alcatraz in the movie for production design's sake uh, just stayed there for the last few years. Like, they're just like, yeah, well, they'll just, that's just how it is now, I guess. Uh, so that's cool. So uh, I guess that's why the movie felt so familiar while I was watching it. It's like, oh, I went to this movie set because it's just like a public museum, basically. Uh, but they lock you in solitaire for like 30 seconds. And it was like, horrifying um it was also pouring rain that day i remember it was it was awful <laughs> i was gonna ask if you had been to alcatraz because i've been to alcatraz too yeah and it, it is it is pretty like i remember being pretty struck by it i mean you know i don't think i i, I hadn't been to a never visited a, a prison before so yeah. that was like my only example of it and it's like it's just it's just a crazy building and I, I remember it being like really tall too or, or something like that but uh I, I mean that's that's one thing i gotta compliment the movie that um it's cool that they shot on location here and like i feel like i mean alcatraz is such a it's such a you know it's not cool you know what i mean to imprison people i guess but it's like as far as the, the structure goes, of, it, of yeah. it is neat there's a similar thing yeah. in Obviously, not nearly as famous of a prison, but in Philly, um, in like the north, uh, like west part, there's like a, a e yeah, Eastern State Penitentiary is like an old shutdown, like uh, old timey prison they have that's like open, that's huge and like open for tours and everything. Um, that I've been to a few times and that's similarly pre uh, like pretty neat like in just terms of like I don't know walking around an old prison it's cool I mean I think the only thing notable there is that like Al Capone was there for a little bit uh, yeah I'm gonna go four bullets uh, I feel like four bullets for pretty much the same reason you said I mean I just like it uh, a little bit less I don't know it's Again, I agree with you. It is hard to talk about something this like sort of stripped down because it does feel like just a lot of it. I don't know. A lot of conversation about like what makes this like such a fantastic film is just like the nitty gritty specifics of uh, how Siegel constructs like a set piece. And I mean, again, I think there's a level of weight that like you can extrapolate outwardly like that we talked about in terms of like the way uh, it's commenting on the prison system, uh, kind of, again, hinting at, like, or I mean, not hinting at, but, like, very openly having, like, a race relations thing, even though I don't think that is necessarily the most developed. I think it's, like, an interesting uh, facet of the film. But, yeah, no, it's a... I think I was going into it expecting something that was going to be, like, because I, I don't know, I feel like generally positively reviewed but like in terms of letterbox mutuals like on the lower end of the seagull uh eastwood collapse and i was pleasantly surprised they closed the book together uh with such a great movie i want to know who yeah. these boneheads are putting this on the low end of that collaboration. i mean low end is still like three stars three and a half stars like, i want to know what kind of boneheads giving this three stars <laughs> anyway malcolm go on answers no yeah i mean i to me the reputation that this was one of their more popular collaborations i guess i never really got into the mud on you know but just it being more popular it was more popular and more acclaimed at the time i think maybe now yeah. it doesn't have the same reputation as the beguiled or uh yeah. dirty harry because of you know things that happen over time but at, at the time it was like on a lot of year-end lists and stuff like that for 1979 yeah no, I, I could see that. And, you know, I agree with Eddie. I, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't change anything about this movie, you know, but I would give it four bullets. Sometimes you got to leave a bullet on the table for the next watch. You know what I mean? And 
I, I feel like I, I, I enjoy, I enjoyed this movie, but like, I was like, damn, if I were like in a theater, just locked in, in the zone, like this would be, this would be perfect. Like, this is like yeah. almost like a movie that like, I need like zero distractions and, you know, I, the living room couch counts as a distraction. You know what I mean? So like, it, it's, it's a. Uh, yeah, I, I as a huge Siegel and Eastwood fan, like this is something that I'm definitely going to rewatch. But it, uh, for for a first watch, I I was definitely really into it and just kind of touched that. I mean, is there any? I tried looking it up and it didn't show up in a Google search. But did did Don Siegel ever mention old Robbie B's name ever? Was I couldn't anything? find it, but it's like it has to be there. I mean, obviously yeah. the script isn't quite that. The script actually took a while to get around uh it was rejected by a lot of studios at first because it didn't have a love interest and it's like imagine trying to fucking rope a love interest into this movie that would be the dumbest thing you could possibly do uh and he does have a love interest it's wolf <laughs> yeah it should be it's it should have been one of the inmates or something um but yeah no it's it, that is funny that i mean these studio heads man I, I should be a studio head the way they're running these stu- they want a love interest come on hey that's a little preview of if 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 Malcolm was a studio head coming soon. Um, last thing on this movie, I just I really love the first time that he goes to the library and talks to English. English has this monologue about counting and how all you can do is count, and it reminded me of uh, the great Hank Williams senior song "Just Waiting," uh, then later covered by Marky Smith in the fall, uh, and about these kind of situations where time and the outside world uh, and sometimes not the outside world, but time seems to not exist because you're locked into this rhythm of, you know, everyday repetition, but that repetition is actually of nothing. It is of just counting and waiting. Uh, And sometimes that's all life is for people, uh, whether you're in prison or not. So I, I found that monologue very powerful. So we'll, we'll leave you with that and uh, be right back on extended clip. There are 12 counts every day. Sometimes I think that's all this shithole is. One long count. We count the hours, the bulls count us, and the king bulls count the counts. Inside, everybody! Nationalists waiting for Olympia to come, and the young singers waiting to sing, and the Zagata outside. And we're back on extended clip. It's Malcolm in the middle. Life is unfair. Ah, oh, life. Uh, Malcolm, what have you watched recently? Uh, you know, I I was trying to think of a movie to watch, and I did the classic thing. You know, who are some directors I liked before that I haven't seen? Pretty pretty classic. You know, simple way to watch a movie. And I realized I had not seen Todd Solin's Life During Wartime. And to be honest, this is not his most acclaimed film, probably on the lower end. Uh, one thing I, to be honest, I should have done this because looking at the letterbox description, it's in one of the, it's in the three sentence description. I wasn't aware that this is a sequel to Happiness, uh, his movie from 1998, which is, it's pretty, you got to love an art house sequel, folks. You know what I mean? Very rare. Got to collect an art house sequel. And it, it's his 
his decision to kind of uh, retread the same territory he does with happiness, I feel like is very affecting in a way that I, I didn't quite expect. There's, there's a lot of people who don't like this movie because it, I don't know, there's something about it that maybe does feel a bit, uh, I don't know, stilted or, but I, I think the way it, it's in conversation with happiness and kind of, I think happiness has a little bit more of a popularity because there's a humor to the movie, obviously, and um, there's an edginess factor too in kind of like, I don't know, there's just some stuff in happiness that other goes where other movies maybe wouldn't and it attracts a certain audience. And Todd Solondz definitely feels very self-conscious about it, kind of almost like uh, like Chappelle walking away of season three of the Chappelle show or something like that. Todd Solondz life... going to Africa. <laughs> this literally, this is this is life during wartime. Is Todd Solondz going to Africa? Because it's 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 kind of crazy how he reckons with all the stuff that goes on and kind of the continuations of the characters. We have a, a great performance uh, from Paul Rubens as a horny ghost who keeps, RIP. Yeah, keeps kind of annoying the, the joy character that irrev like it kind of takes the irreverence sometimes that happiness had and really puts layers of emotions on to the, these characters. And like, just for example, uh, pedophile bill, He's out of prison and he meets his uh, son that he molested, you know, and and they have a confrontation about it. And that scene is, is so haunting as we see uh, the college student kind of stand with uh, his, his he has a poster of um, two monkeys butt fucking each other. And then a, a poster of I'm not there uh, by uh todd haynes shot by ed lockman <laughs> yes yes there's there's i retweeted the still on my timeline where like oh, i gotta like, find that that's good there, there's oh, a, there's man. a scene where pedophile bill finds his son his son doesn't know he's alive and they have a conversation and the background of it is an i'm not there poster and and then another poster of two monkeys butt fucking each other and ed lockman also shot life during wartime so there's there's actually a good Armand White uh, blurb about that if you want to read his review, but um, I yeah I don't know I I I was kind of blown away by this and I, I really do it's up there with some of his best movies and uh, I think I think we need Todd I think Todd needs someone needs to give Todd some money again because I don't know I feel like he I feel like he always had a tendency to do what everyone else wasn't doing so I don't know I like that tendency. Uh, Todd Solons is a great filmmaker. Honestly, like I, I haven't watched his stuff in a while. They did a retrospective of his stuff at, uh, the Cine family, uh, not even RIP, uh, <laughs> rest in piss, I guess. Good right inside. But I, I saw like most, if not all of his stuff other than life during wartime and storytelling, I believe were the only two I'd missed there. Uh, and I really like to love all of them. Like, uh, I think Palindromes is maybe his most bracing and brave one. Uh, it's also definitely his hardest to watch. Uh, Happiness is a great dark comedy. And Welcome to the Dollhouse is like, I don't know. It's like if you take the mean streak of Dazed and Confused and make a whole movie out of just that, the mean elements of Dazed and Confused, you get Dollhouse. And I think movies like that need to exist, so... I'm I'm happy Solons is out there. Uh, JT, you seen anything good recently? Um, this isn't I. When you ask it like that, it's like I can I talk about a bad movie? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to. Uh, um, and it's less about the movie. Uh, sometimes I mean we can get into the movie, but sometimes the act of going to the cinema is more uh, noteworthy. And I had kind of a story. It's not all that big of a story, but it's kind of amusing. I have been thinking about it a lot uh, since uh, going to the theater. I'd like to relay it to you boys and the people at home. Uh, yeah, so I was going to see Barbie. Um, and I got like, 
pretty stoned beforehand because it's, I don't know, it's it's like the fun pink like color movie. Like, I don't know. I'm not going to sit through like a kid's movie, like just like they're like, yes, of course. Uh, what what, are, what am I going to get from this? Um, I, I want I, I want to cut it a little bit. So I, you don't I, go to the movie with the dictionary in your hand. <laughs> <laughs> I go with this. That's the thesaurus. There we go. That Barbie juice is still rubbing off on us. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. So, anyways, uh, I smoke a joint on the way over. I get there to the theater. Perfect timing. Right before uh, like trailers are about to start. Uh, I, I'm going up to my seat and someone is sitting in it. There's a child in my seat and there is a, uh, a mother next to him. And it's like, I, no judgment, of course, but a little bit of a white trash family. Um, and, uh, I'm like, I'm like, okay, like this is like, I'm stoned. I don't want to have this conversation. I don't want to have to kick a child out of my seat. And th- for the Barbie movie, as an adult man alone, <laughs> like I, this reeking is not pot, definitely, <laughs> yeah, yeah, reeking a pot. Like I don't want to. This is not my fight. <laughs> um, but like I, I'm like okay. I talk to the mom, and I'm like, hey, like I'm like D seventeen. Uh, I think like th- like that's my seat. And then she says to me, I'm D eighteen, and it's just like, bitch, I know. Like, I'm, I'm not, you want me to talk to the child in this situation? You want me, like, why would I do that? Why, it's like, and like, what a, what a smart ass fucking answer. Like, such fucking stupid bullshit. And I'm like, I know she's in my seat. And I'm like, is this your seat? Like, all, like, I'm fine with you having it. But like, I just want to know, is this, is the seat that's like right next to them? Like, can I sit here? Um, just cause I don't know. It's still like, it was a Tuesday night showing, but this is, this is a big movie. It's selling out all the time. I don't want to have to, I don't know, the rigmarole of I'm in someone else's seat then. And it's just like, I didn't want to ruin this child's day. I don't want to make a scene. Um, yeah, I don't know. That was my viewing experience of Barbie. I didn't really like the movie. Um, <laughs> why I, I, again, this is, this is really stale lunch. But uh, why did you like? You gave it. I gave it two. Yeah. You gave it three, Malcolm. Why? Eddie won't. A ref, you gave it a hard pass. Hard refuse. Oh, hard pass. Not watching that anytime <laughs> soon. If someone pays me to, I will. Like if someone donates at the fifteen dollar level and chooses Barbie as the episode topic they want to hear from us about, I'll watch Barbie. That's but that's the only way I'm doing it. Yeah. Uh, so you're asking JT why I gave it. I gave it a light, glad hand. The Barbie. <laughs> Is this yeah. the two bros yeah. putting me against the corner? You know, no, I, I, no, no, I, I know, like, I know, I know. I, I just, I'm just yeah. curious what my friend Malcolm thought of a movie. I, I, I thought it. To be honest, I there's, I thought it was like kind of funny. Like I thought half the jokes were hitting for me. To be honest, it is like, it does like. I'm kind of disappointed in the look of it. Like, it doesn't, like... Same. Yeah, no, I thought that, like, it was going to be more... Like, because you hear the fun, candy-colored, like, bullshit. Like, the... I mean, obviously, directors can cite whatever the fuck, pull any name out their ass and be like, oh, well, this is my Tati Lynch-inspired Hitchcock riff. Like, it doesn't fucking matter. Mm -hmm. But, like, I was expecting a little bit more there. And I liked... The, the Ken musical number. I thought yeah. that was a great thing. It was just like being visually underwhelmed and not finding it that funny. Like there are mm-hmm. like, in terms of joke hit rate, I'd say like about a fourth of the jokes mm-hmm. hit for me. And it was just like that and like the incredibly infuriating yeah. <laughs> um, just like other elements of the film uh, that uh, sorry for any I don't know how we're integrating the feeds now but <laughs> it was built a flow chart about me uh, seeing the Barbie movie that goes from uh, smoke weed go to see the Barbie movie child is in my seat and there's a breaking off point here where it's should I even be here 
<laughs> and there are two paths I can go down. <laughs> One is ask the child <laughs> if he wants a hit. Uh, be, then I become his dad and I become part of the family. <laughs> but I could ask the mom if she wants a hit. Still goes to the same path. I become a part of the family. Oh, nice. And then we have an end. Maybe, maybe then I'm giving it three stars. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, my my beginning of the Barbie movie, I had I, I got to be a hero. Because um, I, I went on... Uh, I went on like one in the afternoon. There's actually barely anyone there. And this movie theater I was going to, it has like a screen cover where like, you know, it after the movie comes is off, like the screen cover rolls down. And the screen cover was basically like covering like a third of the screen when I walked into the movie theater. And I, you know, even on my knee scooter, even as a disabled gentleman, I was the first in the theater to jump up out of my seat get on my knee scooter and go complain to the teenager just, just popping popcorn of you in, in the knee scooter being like the projection on the barbie movie it's right and, and you know what the mom there was right right as i went through as i was coming back there was a mom walking out to do it herself and i was like already took care of it don't worry. And, and she was like, oh, thank you so much. And then she held the door for me as I rolled back to my seat. So maybe... You're the hero that the multiplex Maybe Maybe needs. that's why I lightly like the Barbie movie, because I'm like, damn, I'm like, I'm the fucking man. I'm, I'm saving the day. And here's like a light Barbie movie for the, for the kids to enjoy. Who cares about my enjoyment? I'm just like part of the community making things a better place, you know? I thought Ryan Gosling was pretty good in the movie. That's basically where most of my enjoyment came. I mean, same. Like yeah. it's I hate. I liked all the too. Ken like, stuff, not the <laughs> gay ass yeah. Barbie shit. <laughs> Which I like. I like the review of like right wing nationalists being like, "Dude, the Barbie movie rules, dude." It's basically like white supremacy. <laughs> <laughs> and to be honest, I, that's 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 the only review of the Barbie movie that I ever think about. Or for like online Nazis being like, "Damn, dude, Barbie movie fucking rules." Um, I simply would prefer a Hot Wheel toy with my uh, Happy Meal. Uh, I watched quite a few movies this week. By the way, JT, that dilemma, I think, is like, it's akin to Eric Rombert's Moral Tales. You know, like, we are rolling again. Uh, podcast listeners, I am so sorry for the technical interruptions. Uh, a cable slipped and fucking everything reset. But that's why you have to donate to the Patreon so I can get a new fucking computer. Uh, anyway, I watched some movies this week. Uh, I watched I Live in Fear by Akira Kurosawa. And this is like his, you know, this is the movie that all those people uh, are complaining about when they actually complain about Oppenheimer is they're complaining that they haven't seen I Live in Fear. Because, you know, people want uh, a more Japanese perspective on the events and everything. When Oppenheimer is clearly, it's about Oppenheimer and it's one uh, man's account of one man. Uh, I Live in Fear is maybe the great uh, atomic paranoia movie uh, that I've ever seen, probably. Uh, it is really just any kind of post-bot, because there's obviously the whole American post-9-11 movie. Uh, this even takes the cake over all of those. Kurosawa's touch is so special here. Uh, he's back in like social realist drama mode, uh, whether it's like high and low or something like that. Uh, of course, he has Mifune here as this aging, uh, you know, businessman who is so paranoid about another bomb being dropped that he wants to move his family and business to South America. Uh, and they just think he's crazy. So his family wants to commit him to a mental institution. Uh, and it's like a legal bat. It's really a fucking family court classic, dude. Uh, it's like Toshiro, Muf Toshiro Mufune is in family court every other day. Uh, just battling with his kids, like, no, I'm not mentally incapacitated. I can do this, you know? Uh, and so it is a very bleak movie about the fallout after World War II and the dropping of the atomic bomb. It is an incredible family drama. It has shades of, like, King Lear, uh, in the same way that something like Succession is influenced by King Lear. You know, it's the very basic template of it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I just think it's, like, a fantastic movie that almost no one has fucking seen. Like, it's the most underrated kurosawa it has to be uh so yeah i live in fear check it out 
Um, now we go to emails. Uh, you guys ready to read some emails? Absolutely. Always. Absolutely. Always, always, always. Alrighty. This one comes from Ben. It says, hey guys, first time, long time, etc. I stumbled onto Peter Bogdanovich's capsule review of Hawks' monkey business, finding it a minor trifle in his 20s, but 30 and 40 years later, as he aged and went through a couple marriages, uh, well, I, you know, I don't think the, uh, the, <laughs> the emailer doesn't really complete his sentence here, but I think what he's trying to say is that Bogdanovich aged uh, into appreciation of monkey business after uh, 20, 30 years and a couple more marriages. Keeping Eastwood in mind as a guy whose auteur project eventually became about bodily decay, what films or bodies of work were you only able to completely appreciate as you grew older? Uh, thanks so much for a pod that talks real shit without stroking yourself off for real. Well, now that we are on video, you can see JT stroke himself off uh, yeah. a certain level on Patreon. But anyway. Um, and we do stroke ourselves off. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, like... <laughs> Why do you think all these cameras moving like that? I meant it in the metaphor. <laughs> I mean, I, look, if if someone says that me calling extended clips the best film podcast going bar none is stroking myself off, then, you know, I'm a chronic fucking masturbator, but it's true. Uh, regardless. <laughs> I've had the opposite effect happen a lot, actually. Uh, a lot of movies I've matured out of, almost. Uh, not even, like, to the point where I hate them after. It's just, like, the love to like slash ambivalence, you know? Whether it's, like, Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia or, uh, you know, Pee-wee or something like that. Uh, and R.I.P. Paul Rubens, the horrible timing to say I grew out of Pee-wee. Uh, like, wow, awful timing. Um, but it's, like, he you grew know, out of this earth. Well, no, the first time you see it as a kid, it's like it opens a whole new world and you've never seen anything like it in your life. And then when you see it as a 28-year-old, you're like, Tim Burton, good enough director. Uh, This is a very good movie. Very good movie. Uh, But it's not like a whole new world or anything. Regardless, R.I.P. Paul Rubens, one of the goats. Um, I I feel like Eastwood, I have actually grown into as I've gotten older. Some of the stuff that I saw, like when I was a teenager, when it came out, I wasn't into now I like more. Same with, like, the Tony Scott action movies, weirdly. Because uh, that's, like, such a lowbrow fare that you'd think a teenager would like it. But maybe I thought I was above that at the time. And now, of course, I love it. Uh, Wes Anderson. I hated Moonrise Kingdom. Fucking hated Moonrise Kingdom, man. And that kid, oh, my God. I wanted to kill him at the time. Because uh, I was, like, 14, you know? Uh, or when was that? 2010? 2012? So I was, like, 18. Yeah. So I was, like, this is such a lame, like, nostalgia for a childhood that I didn't have. And, like, I hate these kids. I was a different type of loser, you know. Um, And then I see it again when I'm 27, and it's just, like, all about the wincing pain of nostalgia and just, like, these, you know, man-boy types. And uh, it's all about, like, so much greater, uh, so many greater facets of life than just, like, what it's like to like a girl when you're 14. Like, clearly, that is still the weakest element of but I think everything else in Moonrise Kingdom came around me in an extremely powerful way for the last few years. What about you guys? Uh, I feel like the biggest one, just like in my head at the moment, uh, because I finished uh, rewatching uh, the prequels with uh, Nico, uh, is the prequels. And I feel like that's something where it's just like my relationship to them has changed a lot over the years, where it's just like I liked them as a kid. Uh, fun Star Wars movies. Then I hated them as a teen because they were different from the original series in a variety of ways. But then now have aged back into liking them. But I feel like for, um, I don't know, just the more complicated reason of like, obviously the fun like childlike wonder and element is still there of like, he fills so much in the frame with like fun digital weird critters that's just like that that in its own right is is awesome but gaining more of an appreciation for looking at film in terms of like editing like story structure just things like that like i mean obviously there's like a really annoying screenwritery way to look at structure but just the way he's like cross cutting uh between events and like doing 
storytelling stuff on that, like on such a grand scale, I feel like is something I can only appreciate now after like, I don't know, getting into the weeds with those elements of film production. And I don't know, another one that I feel like is fairly recent, that's uh, pretty brief, was I didn't really like the Cape Fear remake when I watched it for the first time in like high school. I liked the Mitchum one a lot more. Um, and then like when, like one night fairly recently in like the last few months, I was like cooking and I put uh, Cape Fear VHS on the TV in my kitchen and like just slowly like became more and more into the film. And I think it was, that's a lot of stuff about like just the nuanced sexual complications of that film and like darkness to it were just something that like, I don't know, as someone who was like 17 just really couldn't, I, I don't know. I, and I also feel like I like things that are a little bit skeevier and dirtier and like more morally, like, I don't know, complicated. And I feel like the Cape Fear remake definitely uh, falls into that. And uh, I don't know, just something I learned to appreciate. Yeah, with time. I guess thinking about this question, you know, we're all younger men, you know, to a certain extent, we haven't been through the marriages that Bogdanovich has had, you know what I mean? We don't, we don't necessarily, I mean, we've got our own wisdom, but we don't really have, you know, we're not, we, we, we don't have like, I've gotten, I've grown into an older man type wisdom that I, so like, I feel like with that, hopefully that unlocks a lot of things, you know what I mean? Just in terms of a whole different way of thinking, maybe, I don't know. I, I'm looking for this old man enlightenment, but I don't know. I was a pretty pretentious kid. Like, you know what I mean? Like I've been like doing like this letterbox shit since I was like 15. So it's kind of, it could be hard to gauge i feel like my tastes have evolved i guess kind of the the dilemma of it was kind of like i feel like when i was younger i developed a certain taste for a certain type of movie that i don't know like like i would grow more cynical of stuff that didn't uh fit into the mold of like what i considered a good movie you know what i mean like maybe I don't know, just doing, like, very early pretentious, like, young cinephile tics. Like, maybe, like, I don't know, maybe, like, being, like, I'm not going to watch as much Akira Kurosawa because, like, I'm watching these Ozus and Mizoguchi or whatever. So it's kind of maybe less... I, I don't have many examples of, like, movies that I liked um, as I grew older, but, like, just kind of more, like filmmakers that I gave more of a chance and let go of kind of like pretentious kind of like cinephile thinking or mm. whatever, kind of like, yeah, I don't know, like maybe not like thinking Bill you're better than it or whatever, because it doesn't fit what you liked at the time. Absolutely. And I don't know, there's obviously a lot of people get into cinephilia, like they're, they're bound to do some version of that, you know? So no, no hate, but uh, yeah, I, yeah, no, I, feel I definitely like, thought I was better than fight club when I was like 17. Yeah, like, this movie's dumb. It's like you know an idiot's favorite movie, and I didn't even like movies back then. Uh, <laughs> and then, and then, like rewatching it last year, I was like, no, this is incredible, and what Fincher's doing formally is just completely fucking next level. And you know, even if it's a blunt object, sometimes that I, I think that's what I was really averse to is uh, movies who really used their message as like a blunt object. Uh, yeah. Because I used to think if you understood the theme it was too obvious basically uh, yeah you know and then i think I've, I've learned to live in the in the outside of that like i if something's hitting me on the head with the theme it's like fine now i have time to think about everything else in the movie uh if yeah. i already understand the key themes to it you know uh so yeah that's my answer that's part two of my answer i guess um, Yeah, no nolan's definitely a name that i definitely oh, yeah. warmer to over Absolutely. time Same. so i just with how information is delivered and like you hear older cinephiles talk about it like like you know when i was a kid i didn't have access to you know every single fast bender movie ever invented so i feel like yeah well fuck off and die grandpa <laughs> <laughs> true fucking absolutely uh, 
Will Sloan coming in here like, oh, you know, I used to go to Chinatown to fucking, you know, go get a get a DVD-R of every Hong Kong movie that I watched. So, yeah, I think, I think we're going to have different problems. You know what I mean? When it comes to, I don't know. We're, everyone's working with a different set of information. So, I don't know. I'm not going to have Peter Bogdanovich's problems, I guess. But maybe some of them. Maybe some of them. We'll see. Um. So that's going to do it for this week's extended clip. I hope you liked it. It's extendedclippodcast at gmail.com if you want to be a part of this last segment here anytime soon. You can always find us on patreon.com slash extended underscore clip. And it's extended clip on Patreon. There's a link in like every podcast app that you're listening on. If you're listening on Spotify, give us five stars. If you're listening on Apple, give us five stars. If you're listening on your own podcast app that you invented, give us five stars. Um, I will say, like, we still, there's still blank check fans reviewing. It's like, there's one from, like, June that's, like, one star inferior to blank check. It's like, what the fuck, dude? You just caught up? Yeah, like, we're come on, man. Past. Like, yeah, we're moving, we're past it. We're past it, buddy. Uh, <laughs> and I know who that was, too. It was one of the hosts. Uh, <laughs> I have it on good authority. <laughs> okay, well, I'm glad they're, they're, they're still checking out, you know? Go to our Patreon. Next episode is going to be on Tetro, Francis Ford Coppola's movie uh, from 2005, right? No, nine, no 2009. Nine. We will see you soon for that. And until then, goodbye, everybody.